Sunday they're planning on doing a cultural fair and then on Monday students are going to be holding a rally outside of the steps of the Supreme Court to talk about why diversity is important to them. Coming up on Carolina Connection, UNC heads to the U.S. Supreme Court to defend affirmative action. Good morning, I'm Sophie Mallinson. And I'm Lauren Lovett. Also this week, as Election Day draws near, some candidates are focusing their efforts on increasing youth voter turnout on politically active college campuses. The Arboretum goes through some design changes. A new mural commissioned by the Campus Y will promote mental health awareness. And Halloween isn't the only time ghosts walk among us. We've always been told that that's where the devil goes to think, like he just gets up and walks in circles and that's why nothing grows there. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. UNC Chapel Hill is preparing for oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday. UNC is one defendant in a case questioning its race-conscious admissions policies, commonly known as affirmative action. The case may overturn more than half a century of precedent at universities regarding their ability to consider race in the admissions process. Chris Kammerer has the story. In 2014, an activist group called Students for Fair Admissions sued Harvard and UNC claiming that affirmative action is basically another form of discrimination which violates the Civil Rights Act. This past week, as both cases finally approached their day in the Supreme Court, students at Chapel Hill took action around the pit. Right now we're doing a National Week of Action with Harvard, who is our like co-case. They also have the same exact cases as us, except it's for like private institutions and we're a public institution. Sophomore Joy Jung is a co-leader of Students for Affirmative Action. The group formed a little over a month ago in response to the case and partnered with other minority student groups to help educate their classmates about what's at stake. They're also rallying students to drive up to D.C. for demonstrations Sunday and Monday, organized by the NAACP. Group founder Sarah Zhang explains. Sunday they're planning on doing a cultural fair in D.C. that showcases the importance of diversity and how crucial it is to our institutions. And then on Monday, students are going to be holding a rally outside of the steps of the Supreme Court to talk about why diversity is important to them. UNC junior Jalen Harrell explained why he supports affirmative action. I feel like there's this stigma that, you know, you shouldn't be able to have a one-up just because you're this race or come from this culture when that's not the case. It's really building a bridge, bringing people together that wouldn't normally always come together. Students for Fair Admissions claims that Harvard's affirmative action policies unfairly discriminate against white and Asian American students. Ironically, all four of UNC's group leaders are Chinese American. They claim SFFA is using Asian Americans as a racial wedge to divide people of color over the issue. This is why we have this pin that says, not your wedge. Meanwhile, across the triangle in Raleigh, the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal agrees it's time to end affirmative action. The organization's president, Jenna Robinson, received her master's and PhD in political science from UNC. Affirmative action, when it started, was simply making sure that underrepresented minorities had access to all of the things that in the past they were denied. And those parts of affirmative action are fine, should remain legal. Robinson says the center supports colleges doing outreach and recruitment in underrepresented neighborhoods. The particular piece of affirmative action to which we object is racial preferences in admissions. And specifically, that means giving a candidate a leg up based on his or her race. Osamudia James is a law professor at UNC who specializes in race, inequity, and equal opportunity in public education. She says it's a misconception that schools aim to fill racial quotas. That practice was deemed unconstitutional back in the late 70s. She also says that how universities practice affirmative action is not so easy to categorize. Depending on which school you ask, they all have different formulas. And, but I think the last time it was 
challenged Michigan said it's a it's a factor of a factor of a factor right it's not it's not even a huge issue in North Carolina last year the district court found that UNC considers over 40 factors for each student with race being only one along with others such as socioeconomic background and first-generation college status you have sort of battling statisticians sometimes in these cases. Students for Fair Admissions is arguing that using race they can predict when a student is going to get in and when they're not going to get in, whereas Harvard and UNC say no, that's not what's happening at all. UNC claims in its brief to the Supreme Court that race plays a meaningful role in a mere 1.2% of its admissions decisions. And the North Carolina District Court ruled that the school's consideration of race is non-discriminatory, but also wrote that UNC is still far from creating the diverse environment described in its mission statement. Getting rid of race-conscious admissions is not going to make that any better. It's likely to make it worse. But people on both sides of the issue say that affirmative action isn't a thorough enough solution. Martin Center President Jenna Robinson acknowledges that there are systemic inequalities that affect students of color. Black students are more likely to go to high schools that are under-resourced, where teachers have less preparation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think college is the wrong time to remedy those inequalities. The center, along with Students for Fair Admissions, also argue that it's necessary for colleges to end legacy admission preferences. Because legacy admissions de facto favor students who are high income, usually white. Just as Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in 2003, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. Now, almost 20 years later, some people claim the time for affirmative action has ended, while others say it will be necessary through the turn of the century. In the next year, the high court will decide whether diversity is a valid reason for colleges to consider race or if we're ready for colorblind admissions. In Chapel Hill, I'm Chris Kammerer. While UNC will be arguing its case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, there's an election coming up for seats on the North Carolina Supreme Court in Raleigh. Democrats currently have a 4-3 to three majority, but Republicans only need to win one race to flip the court in their favor. With redistricting, abortion, election laws, and other issues potentially on the docket in coming years, this election could influence several important cases. Walter Ranke reports. Justice Sam Irvin IV has sat on the Supreme Court since 2014. Irvin, whose father was a North Carolina Supreme Court justice and grandfather was a U.S. senator, says he is running because of his contributions to the court in deciding cases in a fair and impartial way. I feel like I have made a contribution to its work, and uh, I would like to uh, continue uh, to serve the people of the state in the fashion that I've done for the last nearly eight years. Irvin, a Democrat, is the only sitting justice running in this year's Supreme Court election. His Republican opponent for seat five, Trey Allen, is a former Marine, professor at the UNC School of Government, and clerk for Chief Justice Paul Newby. Trey Allen was reached for comment but did not respond. In the race for seat three, Democrat Lucy Inman and Republican Richard Dietz, who both currently serve on the Court of Appeals, face off. Irvin and Allen both emphasize the importance of being impartial and free from political influence. Irvin says that the court is heading in a more political direction, and he wants to keep that from happening. I'm concerned for the future of the courts, and I want to do my part to ensure that the court remains a body that decides cases based on the law, the facts, and nothing else. If the court is supposed to be an impartial body free from the influences of politics, then why does the majority even matter? Mitch Kokai, a political analyst at the John Locke Foundation, a conservative think tank, says that although justices are impartial, party affiliation can indicate their judicial philosophy, especially in certain cases. But there are some cases that end up showing philosophical differences among the justices or even partisan political differences when you're dealing with something like redistricting, which is about as partisan as you can get, or voter ID, which has been something that's very Republican-supported and Democratic-opposed. 
whether the justice is a Democrat or Republican can make a big difference. Philosophical differences between the parties means that changes in the court's makeup can potentially lead to different outcomes in cases. Rob Schofield, the director of NC Policy Watch, a liberal news outlet, says that the composition of the court can decide cases. Pretty easy to predict, quite frankly, what's going to happen in a lot of areas if we have a change in the composition of the court. Several high-profile cases are on the horizon for the Supreme Court. One of the most important ones is redistricting. Earlier this year, the court decided that Republican-drawn election maps were unfair and ordered new maps, the ones in use for the current election, to be drawn. Congressional maps will be redrawn in 2023, and the court is expected to hear arguments on them. The General Assembly is also likely to redraw the state election maps. Schofield says that a Republican Supreme Court could uphold unfair maps. If the two Republican candidates were to um, take these two seats, I think it, everyone expects that the General Assembly will go back to the drawing board, try to draw new maps that would be much more explicitly gerrymandered, and expect very much that a Republican court majority would uphold those maps. The Supreme Court has already announced that the first case in the new term will be over whether felons can vote. There will likely also be cases over other voting rights issues, public school funding, and potentially abortion, depending on what the General Assembly does next year. Kokai says that it is more important to examine a justice's philosophy since it is not certain what issues will be in front of the court. In deciding who you want to be a Supreme Court justice, it's probably better to look beyond particular policy issues and more about what kind of judicial philosophy or approach do you hope the person will use. If Republicans are able to win a majority, Schofield says that they would likely vote together. In general, the Republican members of the, of the court in the past have tended to vote pretty much in lockstep. Democrats tend to be more disorganized, less ideologically uniform, but the Republicans pretty much always agree. And so I think there's this, an assumption that if they have four or five members of the seven-member court, that they'll have a pretty united ideological block. Polls don't clearly indicate who is favored in the races. Regardless, these races will determine the majority of the court going into next year. In Raleigh, I'm Walter Rinke. As November 8th nears, polls suggest North Carolina has one of the closest U.S. Senate elections. Democrat Sherry Beasley and Republican Ted Budd are both campaigning around the state, with Beasley hoping for a big youth voter turnout. Lorelai Sykes explores the role of students in midterm elections. On the 16th, Sherry Beasley held a rally on campus in the Fetzer Gym, which drew crowds of many. Despite the fact that voters aged 18 to 24 usually make up the smallest percentage of votes. Carolina! I heard somebody say, Tar! Tar! Early voting in North Carolina began on October 20th. This race for the Senate is a close one, as several early polls show the candidates, Sherry Beasley and Ted Budd, following each other closely. In 2020, Beasley lost the race for Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court by just 401 votes, leaving no room for error this time around. So she's led a tour called For the People, Get Out the Vote Tour to meet voters around North Carolina and to discuss the election. So much of what I hope to do and what Senator Ossoff is doing now in the Senate really does impact your everyday lives. And so um, it's important to me to, to be engaged and to really be talking with young people about the things that they care about. Senator John Ossoff of Georgia follows a similar underdog story. All right, Chapel Hill, say vote! vote. Say vote! His victory in 2021 in the Senate race, along with Senator Raphael Warnock, 
allowed them to declare the Senate majority blue. In Georgia in 2021, when Senator Warnock and I were elected, young voters made the difference. So young voters in Georgia are the reason that we confirmed Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. They're the reason that we uh, made historic, world historic investment in renewable energy. Um, and young people in North Carolina can make the same difference. Political scientist and member of the Orange County Board of Elections, Jason Roberts, says that North Carolina is no stranger to the pattern of a slight Republican lead during election cycles. North Carolina hasn't really swung that much. It's mostly the Republicans have been winning narrow victories. But on a politically active campus like UNC, there may be an untapped population of young voters. If you look at voter preferences, younger people on average are more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. That's one thing. The second thing is that in midterm elections, which is an election where there's no presidential election, young people turnout tends to go way down. And that often hurts Democrats then because if their younger voters are not turning out in those years, they don't do as well. So if candidates want the youth vote, what do young voters get from it? Martha Plain is a first-year student at UNC who volunteers with the North Carolina Public Interest Research Group. NCPIRG is a nonpartisan nonprofit that works toward making positive changes in local communities. Plain is the secretary and phone-making coordinator, and she works one of the many tables in the pit, hoping to get students registered and excited about voting. Youth are historically underrepresented in elections, um, and our organization is really trying to change that because um, it's very much our future that we're voting for, and y even if it's a local election or you know a Senate race or a presidential race, all of it is gonna, in some way or another, affect our lives and affect our future. Ted Budd's campaign did not respond to our requests for an interview, but early voting continues on until November 5th, with Election Day coming up on November 8th. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. At UNC Friday afternoon, a small group of people held signs saying, protest for democracy. The North Carolina Young People's Alliance is a student group advocating for UNC to cancel classes on Election Day to give students time to vote. Protesters, including Kendall Esk, demanded university accountability, promoted democracy, and walked people to the polls. We're excited to have you join us to the march for the march to the polls. So if you go ahead and follow me, then let's get moving. The crowd walked to the Chapel of the Cross, a nearby polling location, to cast their ballots. Early voting ends on November 5th at 3 p.m. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC student-produced newscast. I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Sophie Mallinson. Connecting Davie Hall to Raleigh Street is The Arbor, a wooded structure leading to a popular walkway for UNC students and visitors. Typically decorated with native vines and foliage, the structure is now stripped bare to prepare for renovations. Emma Cook has more. Just down the road from the Old Well, the Arbor Walkway welcomes you to the Coker Arboretum, a popular spot on UNC's campus. It currently looks less green than usual. It's being renovated for the first time since 1998 to make it more accessible and safe for the community. It's the most trafficked path in the Arboretum, but right now, one side of the walkway is greeted only by a flight of stairs, preventing many from using it. Margot McIntyre is the Coker Arboretum curator, and she says one goal of the renovation project is to ensure that the walkway will be welcoming to all community members. And it hopefully will be in the same rustic 
form that it was before, but be a little bit taller and not have the challenge of the steps at the end and also be a place to showcase the native vines. The new design will expand the entrances and remove the steps to improve accessibility, in addition to a few more alterations. The arbor has gone through four renovations since its construction in the early 20th century, built from black locust wood each time. Cameron Holmes is a fourth-year environmental studies major and advanced gardener for the arboretum, and she says that the wood has required a lot of upkeep over the years. Right now we just have raw wood logs which rot very easily and I've known from the time that I've worked here we've had to replace at least maybe half a dozen or so because they'll either rot or break whenever storms happen. The new structure will be made from contemporary materials so that it lasts longer while maintaining its familiar rustic look. It will also be taller. As I walked under the wooden beams with homes, it hung close to our heads, even with the foliage already removed to prepare for renovations. The vines will hang very low, like maybe roughly around six feet, so I know a lot of people here are taller than that, so it does kind of get in the way of your head. The renovation will increase the scale from what it is currently so that the walkway is more spacious. Assistant curator Jeffrey Neal says that the area is already looking different. It's very much a skeleton right now. Currently, the surrounding foliage and native vines that grow on the beams are absent to make room for the project. But at the moment, we're focused on the surrounding plant material, um, removing those things which need to be removed uh, to be replanted elsewhere so that the area is basically uh, bare and the folks who will be doing the building are able to get in there and do their work. The structure will be taken down over winter break when most students are not on campus. The existing walkway will be available for students in the spring, with the new arbor to be built over the summer. The renovations will be complete by fall of next year. In Chapel Hill, I'm Emma Cook. Within the next few weeks, a mural will appear outside the Campus Y. The artist is hoping it will promote mental health awareness. Reagan Allen reports. Campus Y is a beloved hangout space for UNC students. Centered in the heart of campus, it's a hub for social justice and innovation. The building includes the Meantime Coffee Company, a study center, and under it, Blue Ram Cafe. Tam Lee is a junior at UNC and an avid painter. During spring semester, she saw a Campus Y flyer calling artists to complete a first year project, painting a mural. Lee submitted an application with her portfolio and contact information. As a bio major, I don't really have a lot of creative outlet besides just like personal projects. So I feel like it was like a good try, might as well apply for it. Her goal is to help students who are struggling with mental health. Lee uses nature and the UNC campus in her work to depict the beauty of the world and hope that comes along with it. Specifically, nature is something that I really care about and I really like the nature scene. Um, around campus, so that's why I included that a lot in um, the mural. So basically, I feel like the mural is telling my own story, and I, I hopefully that message is transferred through to like anyone who walked by the mural uh, in Campus Y. Not only does the mural include nature, but also iconic Carolina symbols and our beloved mascot, Ramsey. The main uh, subject that you, when you look at the mural, would be the RAM, like the UNC RAM. And for me, I feel like RAM really uh, embody the school spirit. Kaysen Teach is on the first year council with Campus Y. 
He headed the project that made this mural possible. We decided we should focus on uh, the current mental health crisis on campus. We wanted to combat that in some way. After looking at many applications, the group decided on Lee's because of her sketches and portfolio. We wanted to do our part in a way, and um, we thought, you know, if you pass, pass a mural on your way to class and see, like, just how beautiful the campus is and how connected we can be, um, we wanted that to maybe, like, impact someone's day in a positive way. Sari Gourmet is a sophomore and is on the Campus Y exec board. She helped create the theme and project idea for this semester, which is the mural. Words are not usually like adequate or enough, and like you can't really help people's mental health with words if you don't know them. The group was adamant on using artistic expression instead of written words. We're doing this to highlight the beauty that is outside, so hopefully it's easier to recognize the beauty inside of individual members. The mural will be hung outside of Campus Y sometime this semester. Next year, it will be placed in Campus Y permanently. In Chapel Hill, I'm Reagan Allen. This week, we're going to take a break from talking about football to focus on one of Carolina's other fall sports, women's volleyball. Here to talk about the team's back-to-back -back wins last weekend are Carolina Connections' Will Christensen and Noah Monroe. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. So North Carolina Volleyball is uh, coming off of a pretty big weekend, uh, playing both their rivals, both NC State and Duke, last Friday and Sunday, respectively, sweeping the Wolfpack in straight sets and uh, having a little bit more trouble, but still beating the Blue Devils 3-1. Uh, to one. Noah, tell us, tell us what you thought. Yeah, both of us were at the NC State game, and then I went to the Duke game, of course, and, you know, pretty historic arenas there. You've got Reynolds Coliseum for State and Cameron Indoor Stadium for Duke, and you know, it's great atmospheres there. They're, you know, really condensed on each other. So people really on top of each other. Players can hear the crowd. So right there. But, I, you know, on the analysis, I'll let you start us off on this one. Will, uh, what were your thoughts on the NC State game? Yeah, I was I was really impressed by uh, their freshman setter, Anita Babic. Um, she seems to, like, mesh well, really, really well with the, the hitters on the team, which is, is hard to do uh, as an incoming freshman, you know, is to – know the strengths and weaknesses and when to set to each of your hitters uh, like coming into a new squad into a new position um and she had a really good read uh, of this of state's defense you know landing six kills out of 12 attempts on setter dumps i mean she's she has the timing down and the uh, uh, the knowledge of where the defense is to just place the ball in one of those holes yeah someone else i thought did well was you know sky howard i mean ex an experienced player for unc and can come in when the Tar Heels need a spark, and she did that against NC State. Uh, she had eight kills, and she had a block that won the first set for UNC. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty big. I mean, they were down 24-22. You know, uh, Joseph Gula had to call a timeout to get his team refocused, and then, you know, Sky Howard and the Tar Heels storming back 4-0-1 to win the first set. And then, you know, from there, they, they pretty much had NC State's number cruising to that 3-0 uh, sweep of the Wolfpack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Tar Heels are uh, a fairly inexperienced uh, volleyball team. You know, they have two freshmen in the in the starting lineup: uh, uh, Libero, Maddie May, and Setter Anita Babic that I, I just mentioned. So there are, there are games where, like you know, they should have won, but they're they're outmatched due to the experience of their team. And it kind of looked like that going into the end of the first set of the state game. You know, um, and then you know, like you said, Skula called that timeout, and Tar Heels came back from there and swept Wolf back. Yeah, so that experience of the teams they play really seemed like it was going to, you know, play against the Tar Heels in the Duke game. 
I mean, they were up 24-18 in the first set against Duke, and Duke went on a 5-0 run to, you know, get it within a point, and it looked like UNC was going to drop the first set, but they closed it out, and then in the third set again, they were up 8 points, 23-15, and Duke got within four, but again, UNC kind of, you know, got back and handled Duke in the fourth set and won both of the big rivalry games uh, last weekend. And, you know, two big road wins for an inexperienced team against you know, NC State and Duke, that's big. It provides a lot of momentum for an experienced team, especially going to uh, the tail end of the season. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Will. Other than sports, there are lots of other things happening on campus and in the Chapel Hill area. Here's Layla Pakamian with what to look forward to this weekend. There's plenty to do in Chapel Hill this Halloween weekend. If you're ready to run, participate in Kilometers for the Kids. The race starts at the Old Well at 7.30 a.m. this Sunday. There will be a 1-mile, 5K, and 10K option. If dancing is more your style, boogie over to Carolina for the Kids, formerly known as UNC's Dance Marathon. The race and dance will both raise money for patients and families served by UNC Children's Hospital. Looking for live music? Bad Sons is performing at Couch Cradle Friday night. Tickets are available online and before the show. Lastly, get into the Halloween spirit by heading over to Spring Haven Farms. Carve pumpkins with baby goats and enjoy Halloween-themed drinks. And that's what's happening on the hill. Now moving on from goats to ghosts. Throughout human history, people have told ghost stories about historically significant places. The Triangle is home to some of these sites, with ghost hunters aiming to explore and explain them. Henry Taylor went all in on the ghost scene in the area. So I can only assume this is it. We've got an empty spot. It's right off the side of the road. The empty field on the side of the road that lies before me on a cool Monday morning is not just an empty field. It's the Devil's Tramping Ground in Siler City, locally famous for its lack of plant growth. There's definitely grass growing in parts of it, but the very, very center of this circle, which I've just moved to, um, yeah, no, there's nothing growing here. However, the lack of foliage alone does not give this area its fearsome name. Stories say that if you leave an object here overnight, it will move by the morning, all by itself. People who've camped here claim their tents moved from inside to outside the barren area while they were sleeping in those tents. Why does this occur? Local resident Oshika Stevens grew up near the area. We've always been told that that's where the devil goes to think. Like he just gets up and walks in circles and that's why nothing grows there. Mm. Hence the name, the devil's tramping ground. Despite the foreboding nature of these stories, the spot has remained a popular place to go. Uh, yes, when we were young, we used to actually go out there and camp, me and my sister and my mom. Disappointed by not having had a real ghost encounter in Siler City, I decided to go to the experts. I discovered the Ghost Guild, a nonprofit dedicated to explaining the real causes of hauntings. The group of five was meeting up at Gringo a Gogo, a Mexican restaurant in Raleigh, before a ghost hunt that night and had made some headway on their appetizers by the time I arrived. Co-founder Nelson Naus described the group's mission. We're a registered nonprofit with a um, basically research and education. However, we do a lot of work with historical associations. The nice thing is when you get to mix, again, that history with the unexplained, the you know, mysteries, it opens the door to a whole different audience. People thought that, oh, I'm not interested in history, but as soon as you start mixing those things together, all of a sudden they're like, oh wait, I am. Investigator John Michael explained the group's process when preparing to visit a haunted site. 
One of the things we do like to do is collect people's experiences beforehand so we could review those and try to see are there are similarities and then also like based on what's been reported do we need to use video do we need to use audio you know to, to capture potentially hopefully capture the same thing and then try to explain it. Now's recounted one of these inexplicable occurrences which happened during one of their many investigations of the historic Mordecai house in Raleigh. There's a side door. It somehow opened itself <laughs> while we were there, more than once. Um, and it was locked. We had cameras and an audio recorder on it, and the door opened. And we were all so excited, thinking, we've got this on camera. Camera had died. The audio recorder had died. Uh, everything was just, like, we had nothing. While they may not have captured that particular ghost on tape, the Ghost Guild's continued work aims to expose the historical roots of the spooky stories that keep us up at night. They understand that as long as they're asking the right questions, they stand a chance at coming across something that cannot be explained by anything but the paranormal. However, when it comes to some supposed hauntings, the right question can cut right through it all, as demonstrated by Oshika Stevens when considering the devil's choice of locale. I'm like, he's got everywhere else in the world to choose. Why would he choose Chatham County? <laughs> From Siler City, I'm Henry Taylor. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pakamian. I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Sophie Mallinson. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening. Thank you.